Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to Healthy vs. Toxic, the podcast where licensed mental health professionals explore what makes a relationship healthy or unhealthy or even abusive, all from a scientifically informed perspective. Hello, this is Dr. Grande. Today's question asks if I can provide a comprehensive review of Foley Adu, also known as Shared Psychotic Disorder. Another question here is, can I review the relationship between Foley Adu and homicide? And what are mystical and persecutory delusions? So first I'll review Foley Adu, and then I'll talk about this relationship to homicidal behavior and the role of different types of delusions and then get to a few examples of cases. The whole concept of folia du originated in the 19th century in France. It's characterized by the transference of delusional ideas and abnormal behavior from one person to one or more individuals, often thought of as happening when two people are cut off from the outside world to some degree and have a close relationship. This disorder was referred to as shared psychotic disorder in the DSM-4-TR, but it is not a diagnostic classification in DSM-5. The diagnosis of induced delusional disorder does appear in the ICD-10, but it will likely be subsumed into delusional disorder in ICD-11. This disorder is rare, accounting for 1.7 to 2.6% of psychiatric hospital admissions. Now, this is different than saying that it's present in this percent of the population, right? So this is just looking at psychiatric hospital admissions, a much smaller population. The prevalence in the general population is not known. The translation of the French term folia du is madness shared by two, and it has been referred to by many names. It's called double insanity, induced psychosis, psychosis of association, communicated psychosis, simultaneous psychosis, and imposed psychosis. So this disorder can be thought of most of the time as having two people. One person is usually referred to as the primary partner, but they can also be called the inducer, the principal, or the dominant partner. The other partner is called the secondary partner, but they can also be referred to as an associate or submissive partner. Rarely, folia du can involve three or more people. In the original conceptualization, the primary partner is the individual who has the delusion first. They are considered the active element, and typically they were thought of as the more intelligent of the pair. They gradually impose their delusion on the secondary partner. 
Now, later it was found that there's really no evidence that the primary partner would be more intelligent, but secondary partners do have a higher incidence of comorbidities that tend to impair cognitive abilities, for example, intellectual disability. So they're more likely to have mental disorders occurring at the same time that could influence how well they can think through things, how well they can solve problems. Now, a few characteristics of folia do. We see that the partners are in the same family 90% of the time. And in terms of the relationship between the partners, the rough conceptualization would be one-third of the time they're siblings, one-third of the time they're married or in a long-term relationship, and one-third of the time it's a parent and a child. Most primary partners have schizophrenia, delusional disorder, or a major mood disorder with psychosis, like major depressive disorder or bipolar disorder. The secondary partner would be diagnosed with folia du, although they could receive other diagnoses as well, like schizophrenia, depression, or bipolar disorder. Now, I mentioned before that the secondary partner is more likely to have comorbid disorders that influence thinking. Well, 90% of the time, the secondary partner would also have comorbid substance use disorder. More than half of the primary partners suffer from auditory hallucinations. 30% of secondary partners have hallucinations, although usually they are less frequent, intense, and have a shorter duration than what we see with the primary partner. The theme of the delusion is often persecutory or mystical, as opposed to somatic, erotomanic, grandiose reference, or another type of delusion. Generally, we believe that there are four types of folia do. I'm going to go through each type here. All four types do involve a prolonged relationship between the partners and a close relationship between them. So the first type, this is imposed psychosis. Here we see that the psychotic individual transmits the delusions to someone who is mentally sound. So the secondary partner does not have any mental disorders beforehand. When the secondary partner is separated from the primary partner, the delusions disappear. The second type is communicated psychosis. The delusional ideas are transmitted from the primary partner to the secondary partner. The secondary partner resists those ideas for a while, and then they adopt a system containing not only the original delusions, but additional delusional ideas that are produced by the secondary partner and align with their personality, right? So we see quite a bit of a distinction there between communicated psychosis and imposed psychosis. The third type is simultaneous psychosis. The delusional elements of persecution appear at the same time in both people. This is thought to happen after an event that has depressive features to it. For example, if the partners are siblings and one of their parents passes away. The fourth type is induced psychosis. Here we see that both people start off psychotic and the primary partner introduces new delusional ideas to the secondary partner. So in a sense, you have two people that have a break from reality, but one person influences the other and they add more delusional thought to that second person. Now, under the definition for induced delusional disorder in the ICD-10, we see that the secondary partner has to develop a delusion originally present in the other subjects. The two subjects must be linked by a strong relationship and be relatively isolated, and the secondary partner does not suffer from schizophrenia or delusional disorder and does not manifest a delusional belief before coming into contact with the primary subject. So essentially, the diagnostic classification only covers imposed psychosis 
and communicated psychosis and excludes simultaneous and induced psychosis. Shared psychotic disorder in the DSM-4-TR had pretty much the same criteria. As I mentioned, in DSM-5, we don't see the retention of that diagnosis. If somebody now met the criteria for that older classification, they would likely be diagnosed with schizophrenia, brief psychotic disorder, or delusional disorder. I think most likely it really would be delusional disorder. If the secondary partner does not fulfill the diagnostic criteria for a delusional disorder, the diagnosis of other specified schizophrenia spectrum or other psychotic disorder can be used with the following specification. Delusional symptoms in the partner of an individual with delusional disorder. So now looking at the etiology, so what causes the disorder, what are the risk factors? So the social isolation of the two partners seems to be the most significant risk factor. Then we have a close relationship between the two partners, that's a risk factor. And with the secondary partner, if we see a passive personality, cognitive impairments, or language difficulties, those would be risk factors, as well as negative life events or other stressors. Now, in terms of the connection to criminality, it's unusual for a mental disorder to be associated with crime. Folia do does have this association, though. It actually comes with significant criminogenic risk. It's associated with attempted murder and murder, kidnappings, assault and battery, and burglary. Most of the research interest in this area is around homicide. All four types of folia do have this association with homicide. It's not really clear why folia do is connected to homicide. One theory is that some of these cases are caused by isolation in prison. So a dangerous offender who happens to be delusional is together with a secondary partner. That person develops folia do, and the delusions escalate to violence. This, of course, doesn't explain the vast majority of homicides associated with folia do. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Welcome to the Bravery Academy. My name is Emma Ferris and I'm your host. This podcast is crafted to share the stories of courageous individuals who've overcome adversity and found the courage to live their best lives. We'll explore the science of well-being, courage and connection, and interview top thought leaders, game changers and survivors. It is from these stories that we learn what resilience is, how to heal, how to recover, and how to be brave. One thing that occurred to me as I was reviewing the literature around this was that perhaps with folia do, what happens is that the partners are living a life similar to the life that they would live in prison. isolated neglected, they don't have social interaction, they don't have access to pro-social figures, they feel as though they're being punished. So it's not prison in the sense that they were convicted of a crime and sent to a facility, but sometimes life can imitate prison conditions. So we not only observe this association with homicide, 
and folia do. But the nature of homicide seems to be different for people with this disorder. For example, we see a great deal of violence. Now, of course, murder is characterized by violence. I've never heard of a nonviolent murder. By definition, murder will have violence. But what I mean here by a great deal of violence is violence that exceeds what was required to commit the murder. They are excessively brutal murders. For example, we hear stories of people being stabbed repeatedly or attacked with a weapon like a hatchet. Most of the homicides associated with the disorder are impulsive, although we do see a fair number that involve premeditation. Those who commit murder under these circumstances do not attempt to conceal the crime, usually. They don't exhibit any regret or remorse. We see a lack of empathy toward the victim. And this is true even when the victim is a member of their family. Another thing we see with folia do is that the homicides are often followed by suicides. This tendency is particularly strong with folia do, especially when there is premeditation. Now, on the topic of premeditation, there are different types of homicide. The research often divides the construct into intentional or unintentional, although unintentional often still involves a degree of criminal culpability. For example, we see cases where somebody's caring for a child or an elderly parent, and they neglect to provide competent care. That's still murder. Then, of course, we see examples of what could be referred to as first-degree murder. When talking about this type of murder, the delusions involved are almost always of the mystical type. That is, delusions that have a religious or messianic theme or that involve ideas of possession. These types of ideas are thought of to be delusional if they do not align with normal religious culture in the same cultural environment. So mystical delusions increase the risk overall, but they specifically dramatically increase the risk of homicide being perpetrated against a member of the immediate family. Another risk factor for an immediate family member would be the rapid development of the delusion. So if somebody goes from not having a delusion to having one in a matter of a few days or weeks, the danger to family members is greatly increased. The threatened separation of the partners and increased isolation are also risk factors for homicide. Now, I mentioned earlier that both persecutory and mystical delusions are common with folia do. When both of these occur at the same time, the risk is increased even more. So here we're talking about a very dangerous situation. When somebody has this feeling that they're being threatened, that they're being persecuted, and they have the mystical delusions, that is a very challenging combination in terms of keeping people safe. Now, the homicides that are related to folia do fall into three general categories. Defensive functioning, the obstruction of the fulfillment of a delusion, and the threatened separation of the dyad. Dyad meaning two people, the two people in the partnership. So now let's take a look at the defensive functioning element. Here we see that the murders take place because the person with the delusions felt threatened, when in fact no threat actually existed. So an example we see from the research literature of this type of motivation for murder, we see a primary partner who is a married mother with no history of mental illness. She has a rapid onset of delusions with religious themes, including ideas of possessions and references to the devil. She had visual and auditory hallucinations, and she would see people as devil-like creatures who would threaten her. Under the effects of these hallucinations, she and two of her children, secondary partners, attempted to kill her husband because he had goat legs and ears. That's what she saw when she looked at him. 
and she killed her son because he appeared to be half human and half animal. She believed that her son was possessed. So now moving on to the next category. This is when somebody interferes with the purpose of the delusion. So if somebody is affected by this disorder and they perceive that others are in the way of them accomplishing whatever mission they believe they are supposed to accomplish because of the delusional thinking, those individuals who are preventing the delusion from being fulfilled could be in danger. So looking at an example from the research literature, here we see a rare case involving three sisters. So instead of two people, there were three people. The three sisters had this delusional conviction that God wanted them to take possession of this particular house. They went to the house and tried to gain entrance, but the owners would not let them in. The three sisters attacked the owners and attempted to murder police officers who responded to the assault. Right. So in this particular case, they did not complete the homicide, but it was attempted homicide. So they would have done it if they could have done it. Right. So a dangerous situation. Now moving to the last category, this is destabilization of the relationship. If the partner sense that somebody is trying to separate them, they may become combative. So an example here from the research, we see a situation where two teenage girls, age 15 and 16, had created a list of people that they wanted to see die and had planned to end their own lives if they had to separate, even if the separation only lasted for a short time. Eventually, they killed one of the girl's mothers. They believed that that mother that they murdered was opposed to the girls staying together. And they believed that the other mother was not. And of course, the only one they killed was the one that they thought would separate them. So with folia ado, there's really a lot to take in. There's a lot of information about this disorder. It was probably dropped from DSM-5 because of how rare the disorder is and how it presents in so many different ways. In essence, it's characterized by delusions. So does it really matter if the delusions were transmitted from another person? Well, I think it actually does for a number of reasons, but two really important reasons. First, the separation of the two people may result in violence. I talked about that before. I think counselors treating an individual who could have this disorder need to be aware of that. The second reason is that separation may lead to reduced delusional thinking. So separating the people, even though it's dangerous, could also be helpful. So distinguishing folia do from delusional disorder is clinically important. It can inform treatment. Folia do being dropped from the DSM-5 isn't necessarily a problem because we do have that specifier available. Now, it could become a problem if a clinician looked at this disorder's absence from the DSM and believed because it wasn't in the DSM, it did not exist. Inclusion or exclusion in terms of the DSM is not the only criterion to weigh when considering the validity of a disorder. There are many disorders in the DSM that one could argue do not really present how they're characterized in the DSM. And there are many disorders not in the DSM that we know tend to occur, right? So the DSM is always changing. Every time it's updated, we see disorders are dropped and new ones are added. So when looking at folia do, it's important to realize it is actually a real construct. It's something that really happens. It's just diagnosed in kind of a roundabout way, right? Again, like delusional disorder and then indicating the specifier as opposed to diagnosing shared psychotic disorder. So it's important when counselors are diagnosing that they not only provide the correct diagnostic classification, but they add any additional information that would be helpful along with that diagnosis. 
Now, this really is the case even if there is no specifier available. If somebody is diagnosing delusional disorder, it doesn't hurt to add extra information like the types of delusions, the frequency, something like that in the narrative description of the diagnosis. Now, of course, you don't want to write a book, right? There's other places to record the other details, like in the intake or the case notes. But it's important to put enough in the actual diagnosis so that if that information is transmitted to another clinician, they get a fairly good idea of what's going on just from that diagnosis. So a diagnosis should really be thought of as a paragraph as opposed to just a term. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. The producers for this show are Christopher Breitigan and Madison Linden. The executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. For more content, please visit our website at arslanga.media. To leave feedback or suggestions, send an email to info at arslanga.media. To find more content from Dr. Grande, including a link to his YouTube channel and his other Ars Longa podcasts, visit our website at arslanga.media. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and should not be construed as medical or mental health advice. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page.